You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, there's a saying that goes like this. It's not the fall that kills you. It's a sudden stop at the end. Have you heard that? I don't know who said it. I'm not even sure if I know what they mean. But when I hear that, it's, um, well, it calls to my attention, it calls to my mind the fact that sometimes, sometimes what we describe as the problem is not actually the real problem. I think that's often true when it comes to going through adversity, when it comes to facing opposition in the Christian life. Uh, when, Paul was, uh, when Paul was writing the book of Philippians, as you probably know by now, he was in prison. He was facing, he was going through significant adversity. He was there because of his faithful gospel ministry. And uh, because of his gospel ministry, he was confronted with, with significant opposition. So much so that he ended up in jail. And um, uh, when, we, when we read about this, when we see this context in the book of Philippians, it reminds us that when we live for Jesus, we can expect to face troubles. We can expect to face trials. We can expect to face opposition. And, and that can be really daunting, the notion that we'll face adversity. But the, the problem, though, I think is not the adversity, that the real problem, I mean, adversity is a problem, opposition is a problem, but to my mind, it's not the real problem. See, the real problem with opposition in, and adversity is not the opposition and the adversity itself, it's what it does to you is the problem. It's what it does to you. When you face opposition, when you go through uh, trials and troubles, the real issue is not the issue, it's what it does to you. Namely, it discourages you. D- discouragement can bring the, the, the strongest in faith to their knees. It, it can cause you to doubt, to doubt the goodness of God, to doubt the power of God. It can cause you to retreat from mission or just want to give up on the whole thing altogether. And to me, that's the problem. That's the real issue. Adversity is a real problem. The the fall, it's an issue. But it's the sudden stop at the end. It's the effect of the adversity. It's a real problem. Now, this was Paul's concern when he wrote this letter to the Philippian church. This was a, a concern that was at the front of his mind the effects of opposition and adversity on the Philippian believers. You see, this was a church that loved the Apostle Paul. They loved him. They knew him well. They loved him. They prayed for him through his ministry. They supported him and uh, were, were partners with him in the gospel. And what had happened is that news of Paul's imprisonment had reached the church at Philippi. We, we know that because they sent Epaphroditus to visit Paul in jail. But I can just sort of imagine that when Epaphroditus came to visit Paul, Paul's probably one of his first questions was, what's happening at the church? Tell me, how are, how are the saints of Philippi doing? And, and I mean, I don't know exactly. I'm just sort of imagining based on what I read in Philippians. I can imagine Epaphroditus says, well, I mean, people are well, but they're really concerned about you. 
And they're really troubled by it, by what's happened. Paul, you've been so faithful to honor God and to preach the gospel. And now here you are in, in jail and prison. And they're deeply troubled and, and concerned about this and really torn up. And it's not hard for me to imagine the Apostle Paul hearing that and recognizing that this can be a real danger. This is a real challenge for believers. Not so much the hardships we go through, although they are hard, but what those things do to us. And as Paul writes this letter... He, uh, uh, he, he was writing to a people who he loved as well, and he wanted to ensure, he wanted to reassure them, to reassure them that he was okay. And not only was he okay, but God was still God, and God was doing great things in spite of his circumstances. What Paul wanted to do was he wanted to push back against discouragement and doubt and anxiety and to encourage these believers as they trusted the Lord. And that's what this text does. That's what Paul is doing in our text today. But for you and me, I think whenever, whatever kind of adversity or opposition you may be facing or we may face, this text here, I think, equips us to face adversity, to overcome opposition. Are you facing some adversity right now? Well, this is a text that you got to know. I want you to turn with me in your Bible, please, to Philippians chapter 1. And uh, we're going to read from verses 12 to 18. This text here is going to help us put our problems in perspective. And it's going to enable us, equip us to, to face adversity and difficulty and trial in our lives. We are put here on mission for Christ, for the advance of the gospel. But so much works against us as we live for Jesus. And this text is given to give us strength to stand. And that's why I want to, I'm excited about preaching it to you. I want you to see it. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. We're in our series called To Live is Christ, in which we are, well, we're, it's a verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Philippians. And, and here we are now in verse 12. We're really starting to get into the heart of the letter. The first, the first few messages in this series, we've looked at uh, the introduction to this letter, but now we're, we're getting right into the heart of it. And you can sense that as we, you'll sense that as we read this text. Look at verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, namely being in prison, right, being frustrated, being limited by being in jail, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. All right, so there's, apparently there's sometimes people that do gospel preaching for bad motives, for bad reasons. Verse 18, what then? So, so what do we say about this? What's my conclusion? Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. 
You see what he's saying? He's saying, yeah, yeah, things are hard. Things are hard, but it's all good. It's all good. Let me, I, I think that there's, there's at least three things here that's important for us to understand. Three things that this text shows us that's important for us to understand. First of all, we need to understand that gospel ministry is always met with adversity. Gospel ministry is always met with adversity. And see that phrase in verse 12? What has happened to me? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That phrase there, what has happened to me, is, well, it's some pretty bad stuff. Again, we, we mentioned already a few times that Paul was in jail and, and the frustration of that and the humiliation of that and the concern that it caused was, was very real. But what had happened, Paul said, is there's actually some good things that had come out of that. But before we get to those good things, we, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that if you step out to live your life for Jesus Christ, it ain't going to be easy. If you, if you commit to serving Jesus and living for him, if we're going to be a church that's, that's faithful in gospel ministry, then we should expect that we will face significant adversity. Because the reality is, is that we have an enemy who hates us. He hates us. And he does not want the gospel to go forward. And we live in a world that's in darkness and in blindness to the truth. And they, just, they don't see it. And, 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 and sinful hearts recoil at, in, when the light is shone on them. And so you see there's a lot that works against us. And the reality is that you and I need to understand that, listen, gospel ministry is, is always met. Always met with adversity. And that adversity can be found in well, many different places and many different sources. Sometimes it's people. Sometimes it's people. Sometimes people right in your own family that can really give you, as we say, a run for your money in terms of your faith, uh, right, in your, right in your own family. It can be even a child, a son or a daughter, a grown son or daughter who, despite your, your best effort and your patient endurance, have, have resisted and rejected the goodness of God that you've tried to share. It could be a professor or a teacher in, in, in your educational pursuits who disdain your Christian worldview. It could be a friend or a coworker who ridicules you or belittles you. It seems to uh, take any opportunity they can find to make your life difficult, to make you feel small. It can be, can be people. Sometimes it's just our circumstances. Sometimes it's our circumstances. We, we go through frustrations that uh, we experience frustrations that, that make us uh, wonder about where is God in all this? Or sometimes we just go through seasons of spiritual dryness where we just begin to question, is, is God really even there? Sometimes we suffer loss, huge loss. I remember a number of years ago, a dear friend of mine was doing uh, his doctoral thesis, and uh, he was in Christian ministry, and he was doing his thesis for, to enhance his ministry, and um, he'd had, he was almost finished his work, and he had it saved on his, on his laptop. Of course, don't, don't trust technology, right? So he had it backed up on an external hard drive, and uh, he, he had stopped into his office, his church office, to grab something. He locked the car, his laptop with the, with the external hard drive were in a bag in his car. He ran in the office to get something. He was in there maybe five minutes. He came out and his back window was smashed out and his laptop bag was gone. He's like, I was prepared for technological failure, but I wasn't prepared for theft. I'd love to be able to tell you that, you know, some good Samaritan tackled the thief and kicked him in the head and brought back the, the stuff. I'd love to be able to tell you that in Jesus' name, but that's not what happened. 
Listen, he never got it back. He had to start all over. Oh, Stuff like that happens in life, doesn't it? We face real adversity. Sometimes it's people, sometimes it's circumstances. But listen, it's always spiritual. Paul says in Ephesians 6, he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I mean, we think we do. But he says, no, no, no. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, like, like demons, against the cosmic powers over this present age, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is an enemy. There is, Satan is real. His demons are real. And we can expect, we can expect that gospel ministry will be met with adversity. It's a pattern. It's a pattern that we see in the Bible. It's a pattern we see in church history. It's a pattern we see in our lives. And in fact, it was a pattern that we can see evident in the planting of the church at, uh, at Philippi. If you go back and read Acts chapter 16, you can see that that opposition featured prominently. Now, I want to I show you, that I want to give to you um, this, this pattern here that I'm talking about. I say there's a pattern. There's, as I see it in gospel ministry, there's a, a five-step pattern that we see repeated. It's not precise, but we see this again and again through Acts, through church history. And you, as you hear this, see if you've seen this in your own life. Okay, it's a five-step pattern in gospel ministry. First is, is proclamation. So you proclaim the truth. You proclaim the gospel, the good news about Jesus, that Christ died for our sins. And we can have forgiveness of sins by faith in him. There's the proclamation of the good news. And yes, we, live, we want to live lives that back up that message. And yes, we're going to uh, care for the poor and feed the hungry along the way because love is not indifferent to those needs. But gospel proclamation must happen if you're going to do gospel ministry. So we proclaim the gospel. So proclamation, that's the first thing. Then the next thing is what comes after proclamation? Opposition. There's always opposition. And sometimes it's really fierce, sometimes it can be mild, but there's always opposition in the face of gospel proclamation because we've got an enemy. What happens after opposition? Well, sometimes when there's opposition, the proclaimers quit and back off. But here's the thing, what we see in the book of Acts, what we see in church history is that where God has, where there's been spiritual breakthrough, when there's been souls saved and, and, saved and churches planted... After the opposition, or in the face of opposition, we see perseverance. And when God's people persevere, through perseverance, then we see fruit. And then we see glory. Like the, the glory and the greatness and the goodness of God, rejoicing in what God has done at the advance of the gospel. This is a pattern we see again and again. Proclamation, opposition, perseverance, and then fruit. And then glory be to God. Soul saved, God praised. We see that again and again. That, that's what happened in, in Philippi. When they, uh, when they showed up at Philippi, there was gospel proclamation. Paul went to Riverside, met this woman named Lydia, uh, shared the gospel with her, and she believed. And then, and then what came? Then what came was opposition. There was a slave girl who was demon-possessed, and the apostles had the audacity to cast out this demon. And the people who had enslaved her were then furious. They had them charged and tried and thrown in jail. So what comes after proclamation? Opposition. And what did Paul and his compatriot do in, in jail? Oh, just give up. 
It never works. It's not worth it serving Jesus. It's not worth it. Let's just get bailed out and go find something else to do. Let's open up a tent-making business full-time. Let's just forget this. Is that what happened? No. Not at all. What were they doing in jail? They were singing hymns to God and praising God. They persevered. And then what happened? <laughs> then there was an earthquake. And the jailer got saved. And people in his household got saved. And a church is planted. And then where, do we, where does it end off? End of chapter, chapter 16, the saints are together. Glory be to God. Amen. It's, the, it's the pattern. We see it in Philippi. We, you can read, if you read through the book of Acts, you'll see this pattern again and again. Again, it's not precise all the time, but these, this is a pattern. Proclamation followed, followed by what? Opposition. Opposition that calls for Persever. perseverance that leads to? Persever. That leads to? Glory. glory. That's what we want, right? You want the Glory then we're going to face adversity. You're going to. You're going to. If you are going to advance, if we are going to advance the gospel as a church, we have to anticipate it will not be easy. Just because it's hard, though, doesn't mean it's going bad. That's what we run into sometimes, when we think that because it doesn't go smoothly, we've done it wrongly. No. If you've done it rightly, it likely will go badly. But that doesn't mean that there isn't glory to come all the time. So if we're going to have an impact in this city, in this region, if we're going to have an impact on campuses here, Niagara College or Brock, if you're going to have an impact on your street for Jesus, then we're in that together seek God together, but we know we're going to face adversity. It's a pattern that we see. But it's also part of the plan. It's also part of the plan. Do you see what Paul says there in verse 12? What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What was Paul after? He was after the advance of the gospel. And then adversity comes, but what he tells the Philippians is, hey, listen, listen, listen. It's all good. Because Because it's gone bad, it's actually worked out for the better. See, it turns out that this God that we love and serve is actually in control. And it turns out that he's never surprised by anything. In fact, quite the opposite. He works works not in spite of our difficulties, but through our difficulties. And that's what happens here. It's part of the plan. Listen, I've got three verses I'm going to read to you. 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, so we can expect it, right? Don't be surprised. Like, whoa, 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 my neighbor doesn't like me. Didn't see that wasn't in the brochure. They didn't say that at Discover Harvest. It's in the Bible. Acts 14, 22. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations. Acts, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Paul says, A wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. We can anticipate it, but we also recognize it's actually part of God's plan. God regularly works not in spite of the trouble, but through the trouble, and that's what's happening here. It's a pattern It's also part of the plan. God is never caught off guard or surprised when there's adversity. 
To the contrary, he uses it, he's sovereign over it. And that leads to the second thing I want you to understand. I want to understand firstly that gospel ministry is always met with adversity, but also understand that gospel ministry is powered by God's sovereign ability, his sovereign ability, that he reigns and rules over all. He is able. There's, there's, our God is so big and so mighty. There's nothing he cannot do. And he works through the hard things. That's what Paul says here in our text. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So the reader's like, well, how so, Paul? How is, how is you being in jail helped advance the gospel? Well, he gives two evidences of this. Verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So his first piece of evidence that uh, this has actually worked out for good for the advance of the gospel is that the gospel is spread. The gospel is known now in a place where it previously wasn't known. Throughout the, the imperial guard or the praetorum, Bible scholars would suggest this is likely the, the soldiers, uh, soldiers who, who guarded Paul and who served in the place where he was being held, likely in Rome. Some would posit that's up to about 9,000 soldiers know about Christ and the gospel because of Paul's imprisonment. And everyone else, he says. It's not only the whole imperial guard, but he says, notice, and to all the rest. So who's, who's all the rest? Well, I, I just imagine it's all the rest that are there in the, in the palace, that are there where he's being kept. Gardeners, doorkeepers, cooks, you know, whoever, anybody working and around there, anyone of, of, low, report, of, of uh, uh, low status or high status. In all of Caesar's household, the gospel's made known. The, the gospel's like the lizard, you know, that shows up in the palace. It just, it just goes everywhere. It can't be like, how, how'd this lizard get in here? It's the gospel. It's just showing up there. It has become known, Paul says, that my imprisonment is for Christ. So not just that he's in jail because he's a Christian, but an understanding or a knowledge of the content of that message, that he, is, he knows Christ, that Christ is known throughout the palace guard. So the gospel, the gospel spread. And this is, this is evidence of, a, of a, the sovereign ability of God. God is able to, to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we could ask or imagine. So don't underestimate him, loved one, in your adversity. Like, how could God use this mess? Why don't you just sit back and watch what he does with it? Ask him, Lord, come and work and come and use us. I feel so defeated. I feel so helpless. I don't even know what to do. Paul's like, well, when that happened to me, I saw God work wonders. He says the gospel spread. Also notice, too, is not only is the gospel going forward, but the Christians are emboldened. Do you see that in verse 14? And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, this is like one of the craziest verses in this whole book. Because you think, you think it would be the opposite, right? Like, imagine if you and I, right, we love Paul, and, and, now, and now he's in jail. Like, you'd think, if, if we were there, we, we would hear this, and see this, he's in jail, and think to ourselves, that could be me. I don't want anything to do with that. I'm out of here. Save my own skin. But that's not what happened. People instead are emboldened. That's the sovereign working of God. To embolden his people when anybody else might have been afraid. Their courage was not gained by a sense of pity. 
Their courage was gained by seeing God at work. I think what Paul is saying here is, listen, there are believers around here who are seeing what God is doing. Yes, they see my chains, but they also see the sovereign ability of God advancing the gospel, and this fires them up to be more bold. It's amazing when you look at church history. The hotter the fire, the greater the witness. It's the craziest thing about God's people. It's like the more intense the persecution, the more bold the believers in sharing. Paul's like, that's what's happening. Understand, loved ones, that this is, this is the sovereign ability of God. He powers the advance of the gospel. It's by God's sovereign ability. He takes the things that would discourage us or would stop us and instead opens doors and emboldens weak, trembling hearts. Think about the places the gospel has gone in some of your lives through hardship. The gospel has gone into hospital rooms for some of you, to specialists and healthcare workers, because you've gone through some adversity, some health adversity. But Christ is known in places he maybe wasn't known previously. We think of missionaries around the world today who have taken the gospel into prisons. I think of a friend of mine who was interrogated in a certain country, I won't name, by intelligence police. And uh, it was an intense interrogation. He thought he was going to get thrown out of the country. They let him stay with a stern warning. And later that afternoon, he ran into his interrogator in a coffee shop. (laughs) Imagine that. Now, here. Here's just me, just true confessions. If I saw my interrogator in the coffee shop, okay, I'd get out my COVID mask, my sunglasses, and I'd be out of there. You know what this brother does? You know what this brother does? He goes over to him and greets him and invites him to his house for tea. Listen, this is what God does in his people. Amen. When I was a teenager, I went on a, uh, a camping trip that nearly killed me. Uh, you ever been on one of those? Up through Algonquin Park, 13, 14 years old, doing three to five kilometer portages, swatting black flies, avoiding bear dung on the trail, and thinking to yourself, why did my parents sign me up for this? <laughs> the purpose of the week was not just for a camping trip, it was a, it was a, It was a youth Bible study camping trip in which our leader was teaching us from this book of the Bible, the book of Philippians. And you know what his message was? The main lesson for the week is that pain is a platform for ministry. Now, I was 13, 14 years old. How many of you remember a youth Bible study when you're 13 or 14 years old? I remember because we knew all about pain that week, and the point was, as you suffer together that becomes an opportunity for you to minister together to one another. Now, I would like to think that I could have learned that lesson without having to go through the park and nearly die doing it. But the reality is, is that when we look back, we, we, can, we can see in our lives that pain is a platform for ministry when you're serving and living for a sovereign God Amen. who takes those things and can use them to do things that we could never fathom. Loved ones, 
Is there something that you're going through right now that's really hard that in the hands of a sovereign God, he might be working for good? Not only in your life, but in the lives of those around you. Is it possible that he is opening doors for gospel ministry? Don't underestimate the opportunity that God gives you when you go through pain to speak truth to unbelievers. Don't underestimate that. Pain is a platform for ministry. Is it possible, too, that the trial that you're going through, the trouble you're facing, maybe, maybe an opportunity, maybe the exact chosen means of God to make you a real encouragement to other believers in ways that words could never accomplish? Because they see something of God at work in your life. And it's not you. You could write a poem. You could write a song. You could preach a sermon. But ain't nothing going to preach to them like them seeing God's grace in your life as you struggle. Understand that gospel ministry is powered by God's sovereign ability. And oh, is he able. And here's one of the things I love about God. There's lots of things I love about God. But he takes the things that the enemy would use to ruin us. And uses them to do good through us. Amen. Right? The, the devil wants to ruin you, to bring you to your knees. But God foils the devil again and again and again. Amen. We use you for his glory. So loved ones, understand that gospel ministry is always met with adversity. Why is it going so hard? Why is it so difficult? Because this is what it is. It's always met with adversity. But also understand that gospel ministry is powered by God's sovereign ability. Now, there's a third thing I want you to understand, and it comes in the last part of this text, verses 15 to 18, which, to be honest with you, is a bit of a preacher's nightmare because verses 13 to 15, sometimes it's hard to know what to do with this text because just, just look at it, just read it. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. So he's talking about the gospel going forward. Paul probably, as he writes that, thinks to himself, oh, they've probably heard about the other kind of adversity I've been having. See, there's the adversity we have in the world when we're ministers of the gospel, but sometimes it turns out there's adversity in the church where other believers are. And he says, some indeed preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. So there's some that are on this gospel mission, but for all the wrong reasons. But others from goodwill, the latter do it out of love. They love God. They love the apostle Paul. They're, they're with him in the ministry. They know that he's put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Here's the deal. I'd love to know exactly what was going on. It's just really hard to determine how is it that these opponents of Paul thought that their preaching the gospel would afflict him. Maybe they were seizing on an opportunity, perhaps to, to gain a following, I don't know. But certainly what is clear is that they're motivated by jealousy. They're jealous of Paul's success, perhaps. They have a quarrelsome attitude. It gets easier for me to make sense of this when I just look at sort of the church today and can see that it's like there's some people that think it's just one big competition. And just like, you know, well, how many people in your church? As if when we stand in heaven, we'll care. The more the merrier. Anyway, 
here's the deal with Paul, verse 18. So he's got opposition from without, opposition from within. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And notice, notice. And in that I rejoice. It's fascinating. He doesn't, he doesn't commend their motives because their motives stink. But what they say is true. And Paul says, when I stand back and I look at the sovereign God at work, <laughs> it's like, hey, God can speak through Balaam's donkey. So, insert preacher's name. I speak through you too. And in that I rejoice. So, the third thing I want you to understand is this. We must live with one passionate priority. We must live with one passionate priority. That's what Paul's got here, right? He's got one passionate priority, namely Christ. To live is Christ. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but it's coming. To live is Christ. The gospel going forward, that gives me joy. Jesus is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, some people speak and serve with impure motives. Yes, there's selfish ambition without sincerity. But here's the thing. Does this get me down? No, no, because I rejoice at Jesus being proclaimed. And here is for us a, a, a reality that will stabilize us, that will strengthen us through all kinds of adversity when we live for one passion, for one purpose, namely Jesus. Because as he's proclaimed, even when it costs us, even when it hurts us, when Jesus is proclaimed, in that we rejoice. But here's the problem. The problem is, is that sometimes we've got mixed motives. The problem is that sometimes we've got confused priorities. If you're in the Jesus thing to build up your own ego, it ain't going to work out. If a person goes into ministry to feel better about themselves, that, that ain't going to work out. Because there's serious adversity. But when you're in it for Jesus, when you've got one flaming, burning passion, namely Christ, then he will be your satisfaction. He will be your gladness. And the fire can come and the hail can fall. And the world can give way around you. But you're standing on a rock that doesn't move. He's your joy. He's your gladness. He's your purpose. And the rock don't move. In order to press on in the face of adversity, I must understand that I've got to live for one single passion, namely Jesus, one priority, and one alone. And that's the source of Paul's joy. So you see, you see, if our joy rises and falls on others approving us, then when you step out for Jesus, it's going to fall. Because the world, the world don't like Jesus. I don't like people who like Jesus. But if your passion is for Christ, well, then you're on that rock. You, it's, it's almost like in some ways you're untouchable. Not that you are untouchable, but you're, you're on a rock. You can't be, as long as Christ is proclaimed, and, and that I can rejoice. And that's the call of this text. So let me just review here briefly. See if you're with me. See if you got this. So going from, see, i got to look at my notes again. My brain is Swiss cheese. Understand, first of all, that gospel ministry is always met with what? Opposition. Opposition or adversity. That's right. Gospel ministry is always met with adversity. It's part of the pattern. It's also part of the plan. 
Gospel ministry is powered by God's sovereign ability. ability. Oh, man. Did I got to preach this again? Gospel ministry is powered by God's sovereign ability. Good. And we must live with one passionate priority. Priority. Now, here's how I want to end this sermon today. Is with prayer. Three things to pray. As I think about what do, what do we do with this? What do I do right now? I think in the face of adversity and spiritual opposition, there's a lot to be said for praying some specific prayers. And so the three things that I want to challenge you to pray for, even today, is for joy, for love, and for faith. For joy, for love, for faith. Joy. Pray for joy that's rooted in Jesus and the fame of his name. Pray for joy that's rooted in, in Jesus and the fame of his name. You, the only way that you can conclude a paragraph like this by saying, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice, is if Jesus is your joy. Pray for that. That doesn't come naturally. What comes naturally is self. So pray for it. And test yourself as you pray. Ask yourself, does my gladness in God rise and fall on the approval of others? Does my circumstances dictate my heart's demeanor? Does the sun of my life rise or fall on my ability to control what's going on around me and to keep it good and nice? Where's your joy anchored? Where does it sprout from? We want to be a place where Christ is known and Christ is proclaimed. And so we got to get our joy rooted in him. So pray for that. Pray for that. Pray for love. Love for God, the gospel, and lost people. For God. God, that I would love you. Remember a prayer from a week ago. Pray that our love would abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Lord, I pray for love for you. That I'd love you, Lord. Not self, but you. Pray for love for God, for the gospel. I love this good news. Because it's good news and lands on me as good news. It is good news. It's necessary news that Christ died for our sins and we can have life in him for lost people. God, break my heart for lost people. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you wept for the unsaved? You wept for the unsaved. For some, you'd say this week. For others, you'd say not too long ago. Maybe for lots of us, we'd say, I'm not sure. Oh, that God would give us sanctified tears for the unsaved that would come out of a heart of love for the lost, for the gospel, for God. Pray for joy, pray for love. Finally, pray for faith. That God would give us faith. Faith to trust him in the face of adversity. Open eyes to see that he works sovereignly in and through all circumstances. To be able to say with Paul, Paul said in verse 16, I am put here for the gospel. That you could say that too. In your sickness, in your sorrow, 
in your depression, in your hunger, in your need, in your concern, in your anxiety, in whatever it is that you're facing today, you can say, I am put here for the gospel. God's got a purpose in this for me, and He's sovereign, and I'm trusting Him. Oh God, help my unbelief. Trust God that opposition is no obstacle for him. To do that, we've got to pray. And so, Father, we pray for these things. Lord, we pray that you would give to us joy. Joy in Jesus, Lord. That our joy would be rooted, founded on him. We pray for love, Lord God. Lord, there's so many loves that seem to compete. But Lord, we pray that in our lives, in this church, we would have no rival lover but you. Love for you, love for the gospel, love for lost people. Lord, break our hearts for the lost, Lord. Let us not be indifferent to people going to a lost eternity. Please, oh God, wake us up, Lord. Wake us up to see. Please, God, give us a burden, Lord, that that would move us with compassion to share good news to people who need it. Give us faith, God, please. Give us faith. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, help us to trust you in our sorrow, in our adversity, to trust you that you are God and you're in control and you do good things for your people. Lord, would you do good in us? Would you do good through us? And give us faith to trust you. Give us, help us to live our lives on the edge of our seats, watching for you to work and to do things that only you can do. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.